You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. If you've been listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast for any length of time, you've probably heard at least one episode where we've talked about wildlife management, specifically state wildlife management agencies and boards and how they've been operating on the land and their attitude toward wildlife in general and predators specifically. And you might have noticed that each one of those episodes has ended in a little bit of disappointment over the lack of apparent things that we can do to stop it, to change it to break up the consumptive interests boys club of trappers, trophy hunters, guides, and people who only see wildlife and wild lands as a place to play, hunt, and extract. And so it is with great pleasure that I have someone on today you're really, really going to want to take a listen to. Rick Steiner, who is a conservation biologist in Alaska and founder of Oasis Earth. He's been involved in the global conservation movement for 40 years. From 1980 to 2010, he was a marine conservation professor with the University of Alaska, stationed in the Arctic, Prince William Sound, and Anchorage, specializing in marine conservation and worked on environmental effects of offshore oil, climate change, fisheries, marine mammals, shipping safety, habitat conservation, and conservation policy. After the university and the U.S. government pressured him to restrain from raising concerns about the risks and impacts of offshore oil development in Alaska, he resigned his tenured professorship in protest. Rick has received several conservation awards. The Guardian called him one of the world's leading marine conservation scientists and one of the most respected and outspoken academics on the oil industry's environmental record. He serves on the board of directors of Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, or PEER, and the board of directors of the Ocean Foundation. He's delivered Oasis Earth, Planet in Peril, as a public presentation for over 30 years in many venues around the world, and authored the book Oasis Earth, Planet in Peril, released in 2020. I'm super glad that you guys finally get to hear what I consider now a real, true, viable solution to the wildlife management practices in the U.S. by states. The issue of state management of wildlife has been a thorny one and contentious one for decades, right? Um, and this, and very recently, as of the last administration and even into this one, states have, some states have gone extreme in their uh, desire to uh, kill predators to enhance ranching or other ungulate population, you know, moose and caribou and deer and things like that, elk. Um, and they've gone to the extreme, sort of where we were maybe 50 years ago. In the lower 48, uh, where wolves had been listed under the Endangered Species Act, that that protection was, was eliminated during the previous federal administration, the Trump administration. And Several groups, several of the groups that are participating in our proposed rulemaking had asked the secretary to reinstate that. She hasn't. She didn't. Uh, they're still pushing that issue. But even beside that and beyond that, 
it's not just an issue of state mismanagement of wolves, but it's also brown bears and black bears and mountain lions and coyote and such. Um, many of these states, primarily Western states, uh, to some extent all states, but uh, primarily the Western states, Alaska, Montana, Wyoming, Wisconsin, Idaho, um, to some extent Washington um, and others have sort of reverted to this a 1950s mentality about eliminating predators to for other political objectives and hand, you know to protect ranchers and and things and uh, uh, hunt sports hunters and uh, uh, trophy hunters allowing them to get their elk and their deer and their their moose uh, where and when they want and it just makes no scientific sense any longer we've known this for quite a while and it makes no ethical sense either. So our proposal with a group of 25 conservation organizations, Native American organizations uh, and others have proposed a rulemaking within the existing law to the Secretary of Interior that the Secretary would adopt a procedure by which uh, they analyze and assess the eligibility of each state to receive, in total, about a billion dollars a year is distributed through this federal program called the Pittman-Robertson Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration. Notice the key word there, restoration. Mm. Uh, every year, the U.S. government collects these fees from you know, hunting taxes and ammunition taxes and things like that, and then distributes it to the states for their wildlife and fish restoration needs. But our proposal would make, for the first time, the secretary determine that each of these states is actually doing its job. Um, the, the act actually requires that uh, healthy populations of wildlife and uh, without impinging on unmet needs for a diverse array of wildlife and associated habitats and giving consideration to all wildlife. And the point is, that, for instance, here in Alaska, they get maybe $50 million a year from these programs from the federal government, yet then turn right around and try to eliminate all wolves and, and bears in a particular area to enhance uh, caribou and moose populations. In some cases, it has a, a slight upward tick in the ungulate population. In other cases, it has no impact at all, except in all cases, it destabilizes ecosystems. So our proposal would make the Secretary of Interior step forward, assert her authority in making certain that these states are doing the right job for balanced, natural, wild ecosystems. And if they're not, they don't get their federal aid every year. And that's a significant chunk of state uh, game management uh, yeah. budgets. I mean, in Alaska, it's the biggest chunk, I, I believe. And in many states, that's the case as well. So, uh, you know, if we can't do it through the um, legislative or judicial route, it can be done here through the rulemaking route. And it's a pretty straightforward process. The secretary has it within her authority to adopt this as is, to decline it as is, or to adapt it and make it something that her and her Fish and Wildlife Service in the Department of Interior think will really enhance wildlife management, sustainable 
wild, natural, ecosystem-balanced, predator-prey-balanced uh, wildlife management. So we're, we're optimistic, but uh, um, we've been pushing these issues for quite a while and have gotten little traction, even during the Obama administration. So we'll have to see. I mean, there's just yeah. not a scientist or an unbiased party or, or biased at least toward wildlife protection and diversity uh, to be found on any of these wildlife boards in any state. Jack, that is exactly the problem. Wildlife management, generally called game management, that there's that, that term is sort of a loaded term nationally, mm-hmm. um, is co-opted and captured by hunting interests, consumptive use interests. For instance, here in Alaska, the Board of Game which is sets the the take levels and and the regulations and things like that um, is comprised solely of hunters, trappers, and, and trophy hunters and guides, and that's it. There is no advocate for the tourism watchable wildlife interest. There is no strict wildlife independent scientist on the board, um, and so the, the whole process is captured by the by a very narrow interest. We only have. 15 to 20 percent of Alaskans actually have hunting and trapping licenses, right? But that is the only voice <laughs> represented in wildlife management in the state. And that's the case in many states across the West, at least, and probably throughout the nation. So our proposed rule, which fortunately Rewilding Institute is one of our many, many organizations uh, uh, proposing that joins the petition to the Department of Interior, along with the Humane Society, the Center for Biological Diversity, Global Indigenous Council, United Tribes, Oasis Earth, uh, Native Conservancy, other many other groups, basically says, okay, these states are getting a billion dollars distributed across the 50 states every year in federal wildlife and fish and wildlife restoration aid. Let's start conditioning that and make certain that these states are managing their wildlife you know, consistent with federal goals of healthy populations, balanced predator-prey relationships, uh, and and as balanced a wild ecosystem as possible. So part of the rulemaking, the rulemaking does two things. It requires a public, it would, if it was adopted as we proposed, it would require a public comment period for each state application for federal aid, um, allowing stakeholders particularly those that have been traditionally marginalized, which is tribes and subsistence users, tourism and watchable wildlife interests, independent scientists, conservationists, et cetera, uh, to comment on whether a state is really behaving correctly and managing wildlife based on science, ethics, and public interest. And then based on that, the secretary, the director of Fish and Wildlife, and other staff will make a determination whether these states deserve to get their their chunk of federal aid that year. And that's a pretty strong lever. I mean, if you start threatening the state of Alaska's $48 million chunk of federal aid for fish and wildlife restoration management every year, they're going to sit up and take notice. And otherwise, there is no particular hammer or, or leverage that we, the people of the United States, have over these rogue state uh, wildlife management agencies. So, you know, if the, sec- the secretary should rely on best available science, uh, each proposal from every state 
for this grant should be reviewed by an independent or, or at least a federal uh, coalition of scientists to review it for its scientific efficacy. And then uh, the secretary will make a decision. And I think, as it is right now, the way the state of Alaska is operating and Idaho and Montana and Wyoming and Wisconsin, at least those would be found ineligible unless they clean up their act. And I think this will, if adopted as we've proposed, this would be one of the strongest, uh, most progressive enhancements in national wildlife management in decades. And so we're up, we're hopeful uh, and cautiously optimistic, but it depends on the politics back there in Washington. For instance, you know, the secretary did not relist wolves in the lower 48. And I, I suspect that's probably due to pushback from ran- the ranching interest and trophy hunting and sport hunting interest. But she is going to have to make a decision what is in the national interest here. And particularly given the, the president's 30 by 30 initiative, you know, protecting 30 percent of national lands and waters by 2030, conserving these, this proposed rule fits well within that. And the notion of climate resilience in these stressed uh, ecosystems, uh, which are certainly, un- many of them are unraveling due to climate impacts and fire and drought and floods and heat. Uh, you know, it's a whole new dynamic on these terrestrial ecosystems these days. So yeah. we need to give them the best resilient possible uh, scenario. And the way to do that is to back off of this intense manipulation of predator-prey uh, relationships. So uh, Alaska has been horrible at this for decades, and uh, we've tried to intervene in it, and they've spent millions of dollars, killed thousands of wolves, hundreds of brown bears and black bears, and in many cases it has not resulted in an increase in caribou and moose populations that they've been uh, hoping for, expecting. And it's just, and in some cases where it did increase caribou populations, they've then overgrazed, and they've, <laughs> and there's a problem there. So destabilizing ecosystems this way is a fundamentally bad idea. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org, and don't forget to share it with friends. Does any part of the proposal um, go after the issue of these wildlife uh, management boards, state by state, that there should be some density of scientists and and uh, you know more conservation minded people to balance out these things, or will the effect of it will it have a chilling effect on the number of people who typically man man and that's a key word man these boards uh, just right. go away when they realize that the funding is now predicated upon what you've talked about would be included in this rule, so they're not going to have their you know the the, the, the way the honey pot yeah. Yeah, 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 the honey but, pot. That's, you know, a- that's a very, it's a very good point, Jack. And that, you know, if I was the Secretary of Interior right now, I would be including that in any review of state eligibility for 
these federal, these huge amounts of federal aid going to states for wildlife restoration every single year, I would be looking at the balance of the state game management agency and its board, however it you know however it's structured right now, to make sure that it that it itself is balanced and representative of both the state political interests. And uh, national, and that you know that would be a good thing for the secretary. The secretary could include that in a rulemaking. One thing we've proposed is that the secretary examine in this rule, uh, if it if it is adopted, examine any legislation in states that is contradictory to the national goals of sustainable, balanced ecosystems. And uh, for instance, here in Alaska. Uh, they passed an intensive management law, the state legislature did um, 25 years ago or so, uh, that requires predator control in certain situations. And then when we started raising this issue of Pittman-Robertson funds six or seven years ago, the administration went back to the legislature and passed a new, set up a new fund by which they could fund out of, out of their intensive management fund these predator control efforts. Those are strictly contradictory to the goals, the national goals of balanced, healthy, uh, wild ecosystems and associated habitats that are found in the act. So those laws alone should make Alaska ineligible. And and there's other states, I think Idaho and Wisconsin both have laws right now that, that do much the same seeking to eliminate wolves from broad, broad, huge areas. You know, Alaska's Predator control programs uh, seek to remove annually 100% of the wolves in, in these what they call wolf control areas. And again, it's not just wolf control. It's black bears. In, in Alaska, it has been brown bears. Um, and elsewhere, it can be coyotes and mountain lions and things. And so it's not just wolves and it's not just one state. It's a, a new, It would be a new standard of scientific and ethical management of wildlife in these states. And I, I love the idea of the secretary including in the rulemaking, in the rule, uh, to examine the balance of every state game management commission or board or agency uh, to make sure that it's reflective of the interests of the state. And here in Alaska, it clearly is not. And in most states, it clearly is not. So um, that would be a good one. Yeah, I, I think it's a great thought. You'd have to listen to a lot of episodes of Rewilding Earth podcast to know how many times we have talked about this uh, issue and ended on a really sour note 100% of the time shaking our heads, uh, you know, effectively not knowing what the heck do you do to break this tight grip yeah. that, that they have. And you're the first person to come on. And John Davis, our executive director, said that's exactly why we need to talk to you, because you guys are working on a solution and and, and rewilding's there with you. It's a great coalition of uh, Native Americans, conservation groups, science, uh, environmental groups, etc. Some big ones, ethic, you know, Humane Society of the United States. Um, Center for Biological Diversity. This intersects many of the issues that all these groups are concerned with. And this is a solution. If the secretary did not want to relist wolves uh, under the Endangered Species Act in the Northern Rockies, for instance, which apparently was has been the decision till now, 
then uh, this is a solution. This is science-based. It's popular. It's, it, it's based on ethical treatment of wild animals, which is becoming a really strong, pervasive uh, movement in the United States. And it's about time. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the notion of wild am- animal suffering in traps. And I mean, there's been some absolutely egregious practices that these states have uh, practiced. Like here in Alaska, they were for years putting radio collars on, guarding wolves from helicopters, anesthetizing them, putting radio collars on them, letting them come back uh, to consciousness, and then following the radio collar back to their den, and then going there and killing the entire uh, family group pack of wolves. And they killed you know, scores of wolves in one particular area around Yukon Charlie National Preserve uh, by that method. And, and then they've been going into dens and killing pups and they've been, kill, you know, permitting killing uh, bears and cubs and dens and, uh, and using and elsewhere and um, using dogs to hunt and things like some, you know, some things that are kind of a throwback from a hundred years ago. And it is time that we get beyond this. I don't think anybody throughout the United States would really condone many of the practices that have been used to ostensibly control to kill predators. These are beautiful yeah. animals. They they have a, a an ethical right to exist, and they also have a very strong biological uh, role in these wild ecosystems: mountain lions, wolves, brown bears, black bears, coyotes, and such. Um, so what we're doing is we're these these rogue states have been destabilizing ecosystems for short term very short-term objectives uh, without looking for looking out for climate resilience and and true stable wildlife ecosystems and that's that's coming back to bite us all I think so this is a sublime way we think of the secretary doing this job and not just for wolves but also for these other predators important predators uh, and I think she would look pretty good politically. I don't think anybody could. Uh, the, the state, some of these states will, will certainly strongly oppose this rule, um, and groups like the Safari Club and such will oppose it. But that's too bad. I mean, they are not the United States government, and, uh, and we, the people, are. So I think we have an administration now that's going to be sensitive to this, and we're, we're, as I said, we're cautiously optimistic that. Uh, they will do some version of this. Remind everybody what the percentage of the American public is is considered under the the hunting umbrella. Active. Oh, I think it's just a few percent, actually, of the total. I mean, even here in Alaska, which is known for a hunting state, both subsistence sport and such, and guiding. You know, it's a, it's an economy here, but uh, you know the. 15 to at most 20% of the state residents own hunting or trapping license. So, so it's a minority without question. Yeah. So I'm thinking somebody's thinking, listening to this, why isn't this already done? Why isn't it a slam dunk? It's we're talking about outside of Alaska, an extremely tiny minority of people. Right. And I also wanted to ask you among that minority, how many how many hunters are just your run of the mill regulars subsistence you know deer hunters non trophy hunters non yeah. uh, certainly non predator hunters do you know what possibly the breakdown is from there 
I wish I did, but I don't. Um, but I think that's probably the majority, just people going out wanting to get a deer or something like that. Um, and most hunters that we've talked to, both here in Alaska and outside, find these kind of predator control practices by these states, by these rogue states, uh, egregious and abhorrent and do not want them to continue because it paints all hunting with a black eye. Mm -hmm. Um, and it certainly does. And so most of the hunters we've talked to don't want this stuff to go on and they would support a reasonable rule from the department of interior that would sort of rein it in and give the secretary, uh, the ability to determine state eligibility to receive this annual federal aid grant. Um, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of, it's in the national, you know, here in Alaska, this is a good comparison. The economic value, there was an independent economic analysis done a few years ago, finding, comparing the economic value of consumptive wildlife use, that is hunting and trapping and guiding, versus the tourism value, watchable wildlife use. And it found that the tourism, watchable wildlife values were at least two times more than the consumptive hunting, trapping, guiding values uh, to the state in terms of numbers, tens of thousands of jobs, billions, tens of millions of dollars, actually over a billion dollars. And it's an extremely valuable industry here, watchable wildlife, and they don't go together. Now, subsistence is another thing for our native villages and such like that, but that generally is not what we're talking about. We're talking about predator control. It's generally used um, to try to enhance uh, trophy hunting and sport hunting uh, access and take. So. so we're talking about a small minority within a very small minority that, right. that is going to be affected in, in what they perceive, but isn't necessarily true, a negative way. Because they, they have not proven that if they kill more predators, they get more deer elk moose they get more of that we we in fact we could probably prove that 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 is not the case definitively now because they've had free yeah. reign to conduct this empirical test for for decades and decades and they have not done yeah. anything except if if anything um you know brought up disease and and other things there's there, there's yeah, no and overgrazing and and other problems that were that should have been anticipated and uh <clears throat> but generally weren't there's yeah. a classic case, uh, you know, there's the classic case of introducing mongoose into the big island of Hawaii trying to control rats. And it was complete failure because mongoose were diurnal and the rats were nocturnal. And so the rats still kept kept doing what they were doing. The mongoose ate all the bird eggs. So it had the exact opposite effect that was desired. A more recent one is the Columbia River estuary, the mouth of the Columbia River between Oregon and Washington on the northwest coast of the U.S., the double-crested cormorants, there were tens of, there were thousands of them nesting on one island, and they were eating the out-migrant uh, salmon smolt coming down the Columbia that were, that are few and far between now because of the dams, and so the, the federal government went there, this is during the Obama administration, and killed every cormorant they could, shot, shot them, destroyed their nests, killed Thousands, over 5,000 double-crested cormorants. This is in 2015, 2016, 2017, as a predator control program. And then what happened, destroyed all their nests. And what happened is the surviving cormorants moved upriver about seven or eight miles, 
to just near the Astoria Bridge. And the end effect has been they are consuming three times the number of salmon smolt out migrating through the river as they were down at East, uh, East Sand Island because there was more mix of marine prey down closer to the ocean system. And so it had the exact opposite effect that was desired. And this is often what we get into with these predator control programs. They're, they're sort of monochromatic, limited in creative scientific thinking and anticipating scenarios and results. And they generally do not work for the desired goal. Plus, they're highly unethical. People don't support this kind of thing anymore. They didn't really 100 years ago, but they certainly don't in the 21st century here. So it needs to stop. And this is a tool by which the Secretary of Interior can do so and and also accomplish some more progressive uh, enhancements in wildlife management, such as you mentioned earlier, that a more balanced requiring states to have a more representative management board for wildlife and, and fish. And that's that would be a big one in itself. So. Okay, so what would be the material difference to the vast majority of hunters if this rule is passed and instated? What's their life going to be like as hunters from, from that point forward? Is it going to just be totally horrible like they're going to say in all their magazines and well, they will certainly, the states, you know, they, they're fond of claiming uh, federal overreach when it suits their purposes, but this is a federal grant. It's going to be a hard one for them to, to claim that in this one. This yeah. is hundreds of millions of dollars being, you know, a billion dollars being distributed amongst the states from the federal government. And the federal government attaches stipulations to other federal aid programs like transportation, mm-hmm. roads. Um, our foreign aid, our USAID budgets and aid given to other developing countries often comes with strategic adjustment stipulations asking a, federal, a, a recipient government to do certain things. That's, that's all this is. Yeah. And it's time that the U.S. government started asserting its muscle here and making sure that states manage wildlife sustainably and and ethically and equitably and right and i think the average hunter will see no impact of this other than potentially a more stably managed predator prey relationship in their ecosystems a healthier terrestrial wildlife ecosystem and thus perhaps a more stable access to their uh hunting targets here in the future instead of these wild swings uh, we're we're going to suffer some of them anyway because of climate change and fire and drought and flood, which we're already seeing in many places. But uh, this will be a way of actually, hopefully, evening these systems out through the climate chaos of this this century. And otherwise, it's going to be it's going to be very chaotic. There's no harm, you know, and there is a great possibility that the hunters experience the regular hunters non-trophy. Um, not yeah. blood, you know, bloodlusting wolf haters. Those guys are not hunters right. to begin with, and hunters will be the first to say that, and are That's and right. have. Yeah. <laughs> but there's yeah. not going to be any like material change in the their experience and a possible great benefit or set of 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 cascading benefits of that balance that you talk about in in their hunting That's experience. Right. And I want this to I wanted to bring this out because. You could hear a thousand conservation uh, uh, biased podcasts 
um, talk about this mm -hmm. issue and never mention what it's really going to mean for hunters. And I think that's a that's huge, right. huge oversight because, you know, it, while it might sound and it would if they left it out, if we left this part out, it would sound like we just want to get rid of hunting and we hate hunters. And right. Fact, a and lot of members of Rewilding yeah. uh, Institute are hunters, a lot, sure. and 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 it's because the real, actual, real hunters, uh, you know, also include conservation mindset and a land ethic in in their, in in their worldview, and yeah, those guys are going to benefit by this. If nothing else, they won't see any you know negative impacts from this. And that that's, the only people that we're rooting our, against are those really radical fringe hunters, in air quotes, hunters. Um, yeah. that want to just wipe out things on a sort of psychopathic level. Well, there, you mentioned the word there, and there is a strange psychopathology involved in this hatred, primarily of wolves, but all, but all predators. And I think it, it goes back to our Paleolithic ancestry or somewhere, but it still carries through. And there's a very small percentage of uh, people in this country, very small, that just hate wolves and bears and mountain lions and coyotes and uh, hate and coyotes and hate those of us that like them and support balanced predator-prey ecosystems. They hate the federal government. They hate parks. And so that's that. Unfortunately, they have been running the show. You know, the inmates are running the asylum there in that case. And that and so I think most hunters are not only going to see no negative impact of this rulemaking, the positive impact will be a more stable uh, predator-prey relationship, more stable access to their prey that, that they're wanting to hunt, and they're going to feel a heck of a lot better about it, knowing that the states are not out there flying around in helicopters shooting wolves and, and brown bears. Um, they're going to feel more pride about what it is they do, and that's that's a tangible uh, asset, I think. A lot, right now, there's a lot of people in the hunting community I know here in Alaska that are just downright ashamed mm -hmm. of how this state has managed wildlife, and I think it's the case. I know it's the case elsewhere in these western states. Um, uh, you know, it's a chance for the secretary to assert the national interest here, and which is withholding these funds from these states that don't want to do the right thing, you know, don't want to comply with the federal goals of stable, healthy, balanced ecosystems. And if they want to keep doing their, their nasty predator control program, then they don't get their federal aid. And that's going to, they're not going to do that for long. I can, I can promise you. So. To our listeners, uh, what you're hearing today, it, it, if you've been following the podcast for a while, you'll know that this is the first time We've ever had something like this uh, to discuss that is viable, that is doable, and can actually solve a problem we've been wringing our hands over for years and years and years and talked about with many different experts here on the podcast to, to very little avail. <laughs> like we, we don't really come right. up with a, like, how are we going to do that? I don't know. And then we go away and worry some more about right. it. This can actually solve the entire thing with wildlife boards and agencies. So. Yeah. Uh, and so to that end, I know uh, rewilding and, and all the other groups, this coalition that you, you, you've been discussing, um, what else can people do? What can listeners do? And by the way, at rewilding.org slash POD, 
you will find this podcast. And at the end of every podcast, we have an extra credit section. In this one, we're going to have lots of juicy things that you can do to take action to help support what Rick's been talking about today. But other than those things we know will be there, what can people do? What should people be looking out for? Well, certainly it would be worth uh, sending a note, you know, public opinion message or something to the Secretary of Interior, encouraging her to adopt in its entirety the rulemaking, the proposed rulemaking that this coalition of groups has proposed, um, and to include in it such issues that you've brought up, Jack, Jack the, uh, the issue of a balanced the secretary making certain that every state has a representative wildlife management system that represents the interests, all of the major stakeholder interests of the state. And then when, when and if the secretary does propose this rule, it will be issued in the federal register. There will be a public comment on the proposed rule. There'll be some opposition. I think we know where that will come from from the states themselves and from big special interest groups like the Safari Club and uh, the NRA and such like that. But that will be a time to really rally some support for the strong rule within the existing law. I mean, the other option was to go to Congress and amend the Pittman-Robertson Act, but that's a whole morass that none, none of us really wanted to wade through at this point and probably uh, less less probable of an outcome. Um, so this this one, it doesn't change. It changes the rules by that implement the existing Pittman-Robertson law. And I think if people, if the secretary does propose this, we need to weigh in heavily in support of it. And then if it's adopted, hopefully when it's adopted, every time a state such as Wisconsin, Colorado, Idaho, California, Texas, Alabama, proposes to the Fed, to the federal government, to the Department of Interior, a grant for a large annual receipt of federal aid for wildlife management, the public will then have the opportunity to comment on how that state is actually doing in its overall wildlife management regime. Is it complying with the letter and intent of the act? Is it, com is it complying with what we all know it to be ethical wildlife management standards throughout the nation. And then the secretary will make a determination, and I can guarantee you that many of these states, some, several of them, will be inel ineligible under the guidance that we have proposed. So hopefully, you know, I, for right now, weigh in, send a letter to the Secretary of Interior. <laughs> uh, there's a few petitions up online. Center for Biological Diversity has one. Uh, I think some have closed. Humane Society of the U.S. has another one, um, and you know, join those, sign on to those. Uh, but sending direct notes to the Secretary of Interior might be the more impactful. The other uh, option would be to send notes to your congressional uh, representatives and senators if they might be sympathetic to this issue and get them to weigh in with the Secretary saying that they're hearing from a lot of their constituents that this is a good idea. Please go ahead and propose this and adopt it if reasonable. So. Rick, I really appreciate the work you're doing. I appreciate taking the time to come here today because this has got to be one of the biggest episodes ever for me personally, just because this has been nagging me 
And so many, yeah. basically everybody who knows anything about the issue, we've all been dying to hear somebody say there's, there's a real possible solution here and it's not far-fetched. And you did that today. It's not at all. I thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I thank you so much for your encouragement. And also, again, for Rewilding Institute, joining the coalition along with all these other wonderful forward-thinking uh, problem solvers uh, in the proposed rulemaking. So uh, we're going to follow this closely. And uh, there's meeting. There's been a meeting with the Secretary of Interior, and we're we're cautiously optimistic. So we will keep you posted, and uh, all of your uh, members and, and listeners posted as well. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.